Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi again, it's me, Jack, and today's episode, we have a someone from Global Affairs Canada who has come to talk to us all about the Arctic Council. Now, you may have heard us talk or mention the Arctic Council on the podcast before. I think Ingrid Medby actually mentioned it in our uh, Polar Week special, which came out last week, available now to listen to and download. So yeah, so it's one of those things that we talk about a few times, but really don't give a lot of um, detail. And if you're not in the polar world, you might be wondering, oh, what's the Arctic Council and what do they do? Well, wonder no more, because today we have our guest explains all about it. How did it go from a little meeting in a church hall into the global powerhouse of science and communication and politics that it is now? It is a real uh, force for good, and I hope that you enjoy listening and learning all about it on today's episode. Thanks again for coming back to Polar Times. All right, everyone, please welcome to the stage my guest for today. It is uh, Robert Kadas. Hi, Robert. Thanks for joining me today on Polar Times. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm joining you today from uh, Ottawa, Canada, uh, where I was uh, just looking out the window and we're coming up to about 25 centimeters of new snow. So a good time to be talking about Arctic things. Okay, so this is the first section of the podcast. We like to call it the icebreaker because it's where we get to know you, our guest. Um, so. As always, my first question is, who are you and how did you come to polar life? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a true question. And I'm finding that uh, as, uh, uh, as, as years go by, and I have been doing this for, uh, for some time, that uh, uh, it's really quite astonishing that when I started into Arctic issues back in uh, you know, 1992, it was this pretty, pretty small crowd of, uh, of, of people, political scientists, physical scientists, social scientists. And of course, uh, in Canada, the whole romantic notion of what, uh, what the Arctic and North is. So got my start certainly in public policy uh, in the government of Canada back in, in 92 and uh, uh, jumped around a, a couple of federal departments uh, and eventually ended, ended up in, uh, in uh, what is now called Global Affairs Canada, where um, my main job is to uh, follow the Arctic Council for uh, Global Affairs Canada and indeed uh, uh, manage some of the issues for Canada's senior Arctic official across across the government. Certainly been doing this for, for some time. I'm going to say it's, it sort of happened by accident that uh, it, it, uh, it, it came to me. Um, again, uh, going back to the 90s, working in different departments where uh, northern policy domestically was uh, something on my plate. And then uh, just by happenstance, a position opened up in global affairs to look at uh, these issues internationally. So it was uh, a chance to take the domestic to uh, the international. And uh, of course, uh, over these many years, it's uh, very much a two-way street where international policy impacts how things are done in Canada and, and vice versa. So it's been a, a wonderful career that um, when I think back uh, you know, 25 years ago, it wasn't what I thought I was going to be when I grew up, but uh, that's uh, that's how it all ended up, and I'm very pleased that uh, that it did. 
uh, turn out that way. Okay, interesting. I think, oh, depending on when this comes out, you're our first non academic i suppose which is why i'm excited to talk to you because obviously polar life and polar work is not just all science yeah, so yeah it's really interesting it's going to be interesting to hear your perspective did you ever so you said it's some, not anything that you ever imagined you'd be doing did you ever hold any kind of interest in the arctic or do you ever imagine that's where you'd end up kind of focusing i, I would say it's a combination of a couple of things one is the the whole romantic notion of what the arctic is for uh, canadians uh, but also, uh, it, it also just so happened that uh, when I finished high school and uh, looking for summer work, I ended up working in Canada's Arctic for a summer. So I saw it up close and firsthand, and clearly the Arctic in uh, 1982 was very different from what it is now. I think you can honestly say that the bug was planted back then. Becoming a public servant 10 years later, uh, I guess uh, it decided it had to come back, and it did. Oh, that explains it entirely, that once you go, it gets it hooks into you, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. And I think uh, you'll probably find uh, your, your colleagues and peers and others that uh, once they're bitten by the Arctic bug, uh, it's, it's there for life. Yep, absolutely. Okay, as you said, you, you're working largely with the Arctic Council now, and that is what you've come onto the podcast to talk to us about. I'm quite glad because the Arctic Council, along with you know a lot of other acronyms that are mentioned quite frequently in polar vernacular like you know scar or comnap or or a range of other things um you know the arctic council is mentioned not infrequently and i think potentially well i'm not sure what it's like in canada but i think potentially members of the public in britain might not know what the arctic council is so can you tell us a bit about the arctic council what what is it what is its mission statement what is its goals yeah um i, I think it's probably a good uh, way, a good way to approach looking at the Arctic Council is through do two different lenses. Um, you talk about uh, interest that might be uh, shown by the public or, or the media, which tends to focus on you know, senior officials and, uh, and ministers and declarations and, and that, which is, of course, all very important. But the real heavy lift, the real meat and potatoes of the Arctic Council occurs in in the scientific working groups. And it's very much a, a push-pull sort of thing, whereas, you know, you have the ground-up science, be it physical sciences or social sciences, to uh, address issues of the day. Um, and you, you can probably catalog a whole bunch of things that the Arctic Council has uh, inspired. But also the, the political direction, the fact that every two years, the scientific work that goes on attracts the attention of, uh, of ministers, of, of the political side, and somehow marrying the fact that, um, that scientists uh, who you know, spend uh, their life's work uh, on the land and uh, doing all the things they do and, and connecting it to what could then become public policy, I think is a, is a pretty cool thing. And, and certainly in the Arctic Council, as I mentioned, some of the bottom-up science has contributed to international conventions, for example, on persistent pollutants or um, dealing with mercury. It's looking now at, um, at, at new challenges, be it marine litter or, or ocean noise. Uh, and then on the social sciences, uh, for anyone that's uh, traveled to uh, the Arctic, and I would say that there's not one just one Arctic, there's the Nordic Arctic and the Russian Arctic and North American Arctic, and they're all very different. And they all come with their own host of socioeconomic um, environmental challenges. Uh, so the council has also been able to address 
you know, serious issues such as um, mental wellness, issues that affect communities or even economic issues. So it's, it's the combination of the science, uh, physical sciences uh, and or natural sciences and social sciences and, and marrying it up with the, the political. Over the 25 years, and the, I would say that the council is celebrating 25 years uh, this year, um, my first uh, Arctic Council ministerial meeting was held in a church hall in a small community in northern Canada. And, and then you fast forward about uh, 10 or 12 years, and then we were occupying enormous ballrooms in, in larger centres. And that has been the, the trend from, you know, a small, I'd say, regional body to one that's caught the attention of not only people in the Arctic or in uh, the southern parts of, of Arctic countries, but non-Arctic countries. And uh, I mean, you being based in the United Kingdom might be aware that uh, the UK was uh, in the Arctic Council from from the very beginning, and indeed before that, because of the the polar science that it was able to conduct. So it's it's really quite a a grand experiment for an international forum that I think can probably point to a lot of successes, particularly in in a, in a world where the council itself is is not something that exists in legal personality. It doesn't make treaties. It doesn't you know, uh, compel states to do certain types of policy. Um, it really is a, a form that's been able to advance a number of issues important to Northerners. Good to think of it as, like you said, like an international forum, I suppose. And like you say, its main is one of, is it fair to say one of its main functions then is, as you've just said, cooperation between science and politics and then between all the different Arctic nations. That's right, yeah. And it was set, um, like you said, it was set up 25 years ago today, though this year is its 25th birthday. That's right. Can you tell us a bit kind of like why it was set up? Was there, were there any kind of stepping stones or was there a tipping point where you realized there was kind of a need for it in the polar community? What was the, uh, what was the rationale? Yeah. And I think uh, you'll probably find some of uh, your, your colleagues who've studied the Arctic Council will, uh, will probably know more about this than I will. And, um, hopefully I don't uh, say something that's not quite accurate, but it was uh, towards the end of the, the Cold War, Mr. Gorbachev and, and then the Soviet Union said, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if the Arctic could be a zone of uh, peace and scientific cooperation? Um, and this is before the Arctic Council was formed, and uh, the Finns, um, ever so clever, said, um, okay, Russia, put your money where your mouth is and let's set something up, which then... The, the body that was created was the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy. And it was very much uh, a science-based uh, body to, uh, to cooperate in, 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 in different types of science, in flora and fauna, in monitoring assessment, in uh, uh, the marine environment. So it, was, it really was the political occurrence of the day that, that prompted the countries to, to get together and, and do it. And then a number of years later, uh, five or six years later, uh, the, the, those same states, the eight states, and um, there are a number of non-Arctic states who are a part of said, well, we need to look at the people aspect of it, uh, of the issues as well. So take all the scientific working groups and then include uh, sustainable development, which is a, is a very broad definition of uh, uh, economic, social, uh, cultural development. Um, and that was uh, the Arctic Council, uh, again, founded in Ottawa in uh, uh, in 25 years ago. Okay, fascinating. And but it's not like I'm not sure whether people will be aware, but in in Antarctica there's the Antarctic Treaty, and it's this is not like that really, is it? And is it? It's a 
different kind of no. or, you know, organization entirely. Well, obviously the Arctic and the Antarctic are very different places. Yeah. Can you explain kind of the difference between those two things? Yeah. And indeed they are very different. And it comes down to how the, the Arctic Council itself evolved. So moving from the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy to the Arctic Council meant engaging indigenous communities and northern communities. Um, and 25 years ago, I and, and maybe even today, uh, there would not have been an appetite to have a treaty-based organization that would have non-states at the table. So the unique thing about the Arctic Council, and probably the one major thing that gives the Arctic Council the legitimacy it has, is that it actually has uh, Indigenous peoples' organizations sitting at the table along states in their own right. So they're fully part of uh, all the discussions. Um, the council itself is, is not a voting type of body. It's a consensus organization. So it's not a matter of, uh, of uh, votes for and against on an issue. It, it's, it's consensus-based. And we can talk about you know, the pros and cons of that. But it really, uh, it really is the fact that Northerners themselves are, uh, are engaged in, in the discussion at the Arctic Council table, not just at the political level, but also in the science-based working groups. Yes, indeed. So the, the Arts Council is made up of member states, which are nations, and then these are these permanent participants, these these groups like the, you know, made up of um, indigenous There's, there's six groups. of them. There's, uh, yeah, uh, and they're in, in all countries, except for Iceland, who uh, um, don't have uh, uh, an indigenous permanent participant organization with membership there. But yes, there's still the Inuit uh, in, in Canada, and the Athabascans, and then the Sami, in, um, in the Nordic countries in Russia, uh, the Aleuts, again, there's, there's six uh, uh, individual groups. And do they have the same, does these, each of these groups have the same kind of voting power? Is that how the organization is kind of structured or is it not? That not the yeah, uh, so with the council being a consensus organization, um, it's not a matter of uh, voting on issue X, Y, or Z. It's, it's, uh, uh, very much the discussion and an outcome that appeals to hopefully a majority of, uh, well, a majority of the, the people around the table. So the eight states and, and the six Indigenous uh, permanent participants. Not to say that uh, it's always, uh, you know, 14 uh, in favor of, uh, of an issue and, and zero against. Um, uh, that's the other uh, unique nature of, uh, of the Arctic Council is that it's, uh, it's all voluntary. So uh, if you were to look at the Council's program of work, which, you know, is anywhere from 80 to 100 projects at any one time. Uh, it's not the case that each state or Indigenous permanent participant group uh, participates in every project. So we pick and choose in the areas where we can um, uh, provide some value added and, and some, some content. Um, and that, that's the case uh, for, for all the um, you know, the, the projects and programs. Um, I think of the 80 to 100 that are ongoing at any one time, Canada, for example, is probably engaged in you know, 25 or 30 of them, which often means um, contributions of science or some funding or some uh, other in-kind um, uh, contributions. Sure, of course, yeah. Okay, can we just talk for a moment for a little bit of kind of background, I suppose, about the Arctic? And maybe this is not your field of expertise i'm not sure As obviously the arctic is like we said different to the antarctic in that there's no there's no there's no land there so what's the kind of legal issues what kind of law i'm, I'm kind of wondering who really claims sovereignty of the region is it just like that international law of the sea is that 
just what applies there. And then obviously it's just up to yeah. national boundaries, wherever there's land. Um, is that the situation? I mean, it's, I know it's, I know it's a, a delicate political balance in sometimes. <laughs> uh, not so much. I mean, the shorthand is, is that, and I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer or, uh, and I certainly don't want to speak for my colleagues in, uh, in the oceans law division, but, uh, um, you know, the, the, the sovereignty of the states is based on, you know, the land and then the continental shelf and uh, all of the maths that go on to determine what that is. And certainly there's a portion of uh, the Arctic that uh, would not be captured under either land or continental shelf. Um, and there are other international mechanisms that, uh, that would guide uh, how uh, states, Arctic states and non-Arctic states conduct themselves. So be it... Uh, um, the, the law of the sea or other mechanisms that are in place, the, the, the polar code when it comes to shipping or um, other agreements that have been established such as uh, on, uh, on fishing. So there are, there are hosts of um, mechanisms that uh, help Arctic and non-Arctic states uh, um, in, in that part of the world. But yeah, sovereignty, Canadian sovereignty is what Canadian sovereignty is, is the land and the Commonwealth shelf and the same for the U.S., with respect to Alaska and Norway and the Kingdom of Denmark, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, um, I think if you were to take an actual map and draw the lines, I think you'd probably find uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty clear. Now, you, you mentioned sometimes there, there may be controversy, and I, I think sometimes that comes down to interpretations, but uh, the, the, the basis of uh, Arctic sovereignty is sound throughout the, the eight countries. It might come down to... And, I don't know if you're thinking of the Northwest Passage. Canada looks at the at the Northwest Passage as a an internal strait, whereas uh, U.S. looks at it as a, uh, as a strait for international passage. So it's not a sovereignty question; it's the legal status of the waters that the Northwest Passage uh, comprises. Sure, sure. And um, the Arctic Council is not in, as you said, it's not in a position to, um, you know, create or dictate laws or even policies but you are kind of the forum for like neg- negotiating these laws which apply to the arctic yeah it really has found a sort of a niche that uh, the arctic council is using its convening power to pull or to bring together the eight states and the indigenous permanent participants and uh, and a variety of non-arctic states where there's interest to do things such as in search and rescue or scientific cooperation or in uh, oil spill uh, uh, preparedness and uh, those are, uh, are are great uh, instruments that the council has sort of been able to facilitate. But you're right; it, they're not Arctic Council agreements per se. Yeah, I've yeah, I just found those. Um, they really jumped out at me on the website as just being quite interesting legally binding agreements. It's just yeah, okay. So let's talk a bit more about kind of the structure of the council, I suppose. So it's we have members, we have permanent participants, and then the projects are kind of. Uh, working groups is that can you talk to us a bit about what the working groups are and how they're different to expert groups and task forces and all the different (laughs) well we've got those two and and we have task forces as well so there's there's a little bit of everything yeah so the 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 primary work is conducted under what is the called the working group and there are six of those and they all have um, specific focus and uh, and mandate uh, so one dealing with um, uh, monitoring and assessments, so actually, you know, getting in and measuring, you know, mercury or or contaminants. 
Um, another one that deals with uh, the Arctic marine environment. So, you know, the impacts on the seas for various, uh, uh, various things. Uh, another working group, uh, the CAF group that looks at uh, Arctic flora and fauna. Uh, so impacts on, uh, on, on those elements. Uh, there's one that uh, looks at um, uh, contaminants uh, specifically and, and actually an action plan. So it looks at things such as, you know, uh, pollution and heavy metals. Uh, and then there's one that deals, uh, that has expertise in uh, emergency preparedness. And this is where we do things such as search and rescue and then and uh, oil, oil pollution uh, uh, preparedness. And in each of those working groups, there are a number of expert groups depending on the projects that it's undertaking. So as I mentioned earlier, there's 80 to 100 projects going on at any one time. Uh, I don't have the list uh, close at hand, but, but uh, it's um, it's available on the on the Arctic Council website. And there, the heavy lift, the real work in those projects are conducted by experts uh, and scientists and and others to deliver on what the project is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just I'm looking at the list right now, um, and they cover absolutely like everything traffic data blue bioeconomy indigenous youth and food knowledge and arctic change literally literally everything and they're quite they and the project groups are well they're enormous aren't they <laughs> and quite you know sweeping and very you know ongoing and big just big projects the stuff that's coming out of them is really incredible yes and again that's that's one of the the the, the various things of the council that it, it does look at a variety of issues that it's not you know occupying just one specific niche of of arctic life it's it looks at a whole range of uh, of, uh, of things yeah yeah i uh, one that caught my eyes like actions for arctic biodiversity 2013 to 2021 so you know they're covering big time periods and it's not what strikes me as really interesting about that obviously i'm, I'm a scientist by my background we go into the field and we do science and it comes up with results but then it doesn't necessarily always provide you know actions or things that for you to implement so you know having yes lists like this of like actual real proactivity i suppose is very exciting and it's good to know that it exists it is and uh, you'll find that if you scan the list and i'm not sure uh, how detailed uh, the one you're looking at is but some project work can be done in two years because it's uh, it's short and sharp and you can um, you can do the necessary research and come up with uh, findings and recommendations. Others take, you know, four, six, eight years uh, to uh, to go start to finish. So the council isn't, while there's always the political imperative to uh, respond to ministers every two years, it's not the entire portfolio of Arctic Council work that's delivered. Uh, because some of it is ongoing and some of it is, uh, as I said, um, is, is doable in two years. Uh, but uh, there's there's a, a significant uh, body of work that uh, that is ongoing. I would suggest that as a and as a scientist, you, you discover things, you you know come up with findings or recommendations. Oh my goodness, we have to look at this because this is, you know, uh, critically important to help understand the rest. So the project can sort of turn into other things as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, we all kind of dream of that, of our science ending up influencing policy, but that doesn't always end up being the case, depending on what you yeah. find. How do these projects end up being delivered? Is it up to the members and the permanent participants to like fund various projects that they're involved with? How is the kind of, do you have a 
budget per se? What's how is it divided? No, so it's it's all voluntary. Um, so when I say that Canada, for example, participates in you know thirty of the eighty or so projects, um, a lot of that would be based on Canada's uh, uh, national funding profile for you know pick a, pick a subject. Let's say contaminants, for example. There's a significant domestic program uh, that looks at um, contaminants very deeply. That often becomes Canada's contribution to the overall Arctic Council work. Um, and that would also be the case in, in many of the other states, uh, uh, no in the U.S. Uh, or, or the science-based um, departments in, in the other countries. Sometimes there are projects that uh, really do come bottom-up. So I, I explain that sometimes um, uh, field scientists will come back after having done you know, a good body of work and say that, well, here's this other niche that we really should pay some attention to. and then. Um, again, voluntary, it becomes a bit of a passing the hat exercise. You know, can we find uh, the scientists uh, and then subsequently authors and uh, or lead authors and, and other authors and other contributors to help make that project a reality? But um, oftentimes, um, you're not talking large sums of uh, uh, of money. It piggybacks on research that is that may already be uh, being undertaken or uh, the you know, the good graces of uh, Government Department X that might have some uh, some extra money. Okay, and what are the, some of the most exciting projects that you have running currently, in your opinion, if you can think any off the top of your head? Yeah, uh, and I'm not a scientist, uh, so while I sit in on many of the, the, the scientific working groups, uh, um, it's, it's interesting, but it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's not something that I, uh, I, I, I practice. Um, certainly the ones that uh, have impacts on northerners are the ones that uh, really get my attention. And, and sometimes they're not pretty issues. So I, I talked about mental wellness issues uh, a little bit earlier. Suicide prevention and, and mental wellness is, uh, is a tough, tough issue. It's an important issue to northerners, and it's, it's one that really is, uh, is, is quite striking. One of the good things about the Arctic Council and the rotationality uh, between uh, countries, so a ministry every two years. Right now, it's Iceland. Iceland has uh, brought a particular focus on uh, blue bioeconomy that you mentioned, uh, the marine issues, uh, uh, climate and environment. Um, so there is a uh, an opportunity to to pay attention to those things. The Russian Federation will assume the chairmanship uh, later on this spring, um, and they're going to have a set of priorities that they're going to um, want to address. So there'll be some new things that they bring to the table, in addition to, as I mentioned before, the ongoing work that's taking place in, in the scientific working group. So it's, uh, there's always something new and exciting. As far as issues that I think, as a non-scientist, uh, thinks that the council may be paying attention to uh, sooner rather than later, uh, will probably be issues of uh, permafrost thaw. Uh, we saw last summer um, a, a terrible accident in uh, in the Russian Arctic around um, an oil facility, uh, and that was a you know a headline grabbing. It was you know uh, disastrous in terms of uh, what happened to the environment. But there's also smaller um, scale permafrost issues in other parts of the Arctic. We have communities in the Canadian Arctic that. Uh, uh, the thawing permafrost is uh, damaging infrastructure. They have to move, you know, the town farther away from the ocean. You know, runways are cracking, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is probably the, the next big thing. 
that the council, and this is my view, the next big thing that the council will probably uh, be looking to pay some attention to, in addition to all of the other ongoing uh, issues of uh, climate and environment. And of course, now we have COVID. How does how should uh, the council respond to, uh, to COVID-19 in, in a certain polar context? So there's, uh, there's lots on the go. Yeah, absolutely. And you've uh, kind of uh, jumped ahead of a question that I was probably going to ask you. And it is, of course, about, <laughs> about COVID. And just, in, well, I was going to ask you what the current big news topics in the Arctic are at the moment. And I would imagine that one of them is COVID. And do you know you said that's something that the council yeah. is going to discuss in the future but it must have been discussing it already was there any kind of what and the, it's inescapable i mean uh, yeah, absolutely an, yeah. an issue of that that global uh, significance you can't get away from and so early on and i'll say well early on so last spring i guess it would have been i guess we went into it got very serious around March, at least here in Canada. By June, uh, the Arctic Council was putting together some, uh, or pulling together some research on uh, on possible responses in an Arctic context. Again, going back to the notion that uh, the Council is not a treaty-making body and that it doesn't direct it, it really does become a matter of bringing together information, sharing information, and approaches to as to how communities can can manage. The Canadian Arctic is um, uh, is a tough place to be. I mean, there are very few hospitals, so if, if a community gets sick, it's uh, it's uh, it's they're in, in deep trouble. So the responses that the, that northern communities have undertaken during COVID, I mean, they got in, they went into lockdown and closed, you know, the borders pretty early on in an attempt to keep COVID out, and it was successful for a while. But, you know, COVID is the, the devil that doesn't sleep, and it finds its way into places. Um, so now we're finding, you know, again, in the Canadian context, some communities are experiencing that. So in addition to national uh, approaches to deal with the pandemic, hopefully there are ways, hopefully there are things the Arctic Council can can contribute in terms of knowledge and approaches in an Arctic context that uh, that will be helpful. We just scanning the the Arctic news, finding that you know Alaska is actually doing pretty well in terms of uh, of vaccination rates. Uh, I haven't followed every country, but uh, it's uh, it's it's nice to see that you know there is an Arctic success story, along with the anecdotal things in the news stories where uh, vaccines are being delivered by you know snowmobile and airplane and dog sled and 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 the like. That's again, goes to the whole romantic notion of what the Arctic is, but uh, getting the job done. As far as what will come out in May at the ministerial meeting on COVID, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I think uh, ministers will need to to say something about COVID in the, in the Arctic uh, uh, in the Arctic environment. Yeah, yeah, that's really, um, we'll have to, maybe we'll have to do some kind of little follow-up or something. Yeah, because it's very interesting. That's probably, I mean, that's partly how this entire uh, podcast sprang into being just out of the feeling that in COVID times, it's so easy for your to shrink into your own little bubble and for your perspective to just shrink to what you can see around you. And we forget that it's happening everywhere, even in the remote, wilder places, you know, even in the poles. So yeah, it's really interesting to hear what's happening up there as well. So yeah, okay. Apart apart from COVID, <laughs> what else is big currently yeah. in polar in Arctic news? What were the big things last year? 
Uh, certainly that, yeah, that dominated the, the news. Um, Arctic, well, uh, the, the, the most exciting uh, Arctic news um, last year was, uh, uh, was the Mosaic Project. Um, oh, yes. And uh, the Polar Stern uh, locking themselves in the ice for a year and doing research that had never been done before. So that was a, a very good news story, although there was also a COVID element because uh, with all the borders shut down, when, uh, when some of the scientists were due to um, you know, cycle out, uh, they found they had nowhere to go because uh, everyone's borders were closed. So I think um, it took a bit of an effort among another of a number of countries to actually help facilitate uh, these scientists to, to get in and out. But uh, no, I think that was the big news last year was Mosaic. Yes, indeed. I think we, um, we've had a guest on who was on the ship at the beginning. So we've heard a little bit about Mosaic um, before, but it was, I mean, an incredible project. One of the very, very exciting polar news. So yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. So have you, how, may I ask how long you've been involved with the Arctic Council? Were you involved like in its early days in setting it up or? Just after it was set up. So I wasn't there for the signing of the Ottawa Declaration in 1996, but um, I did attend the uh, the first ministerial meeting in the Kaluit, uh, what was then Northwest Territories in uh, 1998, and uh, um, off and on been involved in uh, Canada's efforts at the Council since then uh, in varying capacities. Um, um, and uh, most notably, when Canada had its um, second chairmanship of the Council, uh, I'm going to lose track of years, 20, was it 2013, 2015, or I think that's about right. But played a, a major role in Canada's uh, work at the council then. So a long time, 20, almost, uh, almost the whole time. Okay. And um, in that time, apart from it growing in, I suppose, size and prestige, um, what has been the biggest change that you've seen in that in the Arctic Council or in the Arctic in general? Has there been any kind of like shifts in focus over time or just natural growth? Yeah, natural growth. Um, I guess that's one, one way of saying it. Um, it's certainly growth. Just the, the, the interest uh, from, you know, what was probably, as I mentioned at the top, you know, a small band of, of scientists who all knew each other uh, from uh, around the world and um, probably ran into each other at various conferences uh, to talk about their, you know, their latest research on, on, on this or that to a much larger group of uh, people around the world, uh, both scientifically and, and politically. Uh, and, and that's putting aside, you know, interest from, from non-Arctic countries in, uh, in Southern Europe or in, uh, in, in Asia. Yeah, that's the the the, the biggest thing, um, and some of that is driven by uh, natural events. So climate is uh, is changing. Uh, the Arctic is warming. Uh, it is becoming. I don't want to say more accessible because it's 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 still a pretty tough place to 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 live, work, and and research and study. If you've had the uh, the good fortune of going north, you know even in the summertime, it's uh, it's a tough place to be. But it is becoming a bit more uh, accessible, and uh, combined with you know the scientific interest, there's also interest in terms of uh, of tourism and uh, resource development and and the like. So there's uh, a variety of uh, of additional interest over the over the 25 years. So I guess maybe natural growth. 
Yeah. And was that always from the start and like an, an equal interest in kind of like social aspects or was it purely like scientific at the beginning? Well, I'm sure there was always a band of uh, a band. There was always a group of folks that looked to uh, do adventure tourism in the north. Uh, certainly, the Nordic countries developed their tourism industry, you know, quite a few years before uh, Canada did. But no, I think it was probably again, it's it's either the people that actually lived there, lived there, and worked there, from indigenous peoples to um, resource development folks who would fly in and fly out, but a small group of, uh, of, of those individuals. Okay, fabulous. And okay, um, million dollar question. Uh, what, in yeah. your opinion, are, what would you say is the Arctic Council's greatest achievements to date? Oh boy, yeah. I should have studied for that one. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Anything okay. that springs uh, to mind. Well, yeah. Well, the, the one and, you know, I'm in government and I work in, in a foreign ministry. So you look at, you know, where you've been able to get the treaties in place. Um, so you think of the, uh, uh, the Stockholm, the, UN, uh, the, the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants, the Arctic science that contributed to that agreement was Arctic Council. So I remember the early days of my getting involved in Arctic Council work and someone dropped the, uh, the first um, AMAP report on my desk and, you know, uh, goodness gracious, it was uh, probably four inches thick, thousands of pages, the print was minuscule, and it was, uh, it was all science. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the, the body of work that had been undertaken over however many years that eventually ended up um, contributing to uh, a, a UN convention is, uh, is pretty significant. From the, the people aspect of it, Engagement of, of Indigenous peoples uh, is uh, uh, probably uh, right up there in terms of success that science and politics and uh, including perspectives of, uh, of Northern peoples in the work, not just the political work, but the scientific work uh, is, uh, is probably groundbreaking as well. And that was, uh, you know, that took a bit of time to, uh, to, come, to come to grips with as well. I'm old enough to remember, you know, scientists um, in Southern University, you know, heading north, uh, doing their research, coming back home and doing all the, the associated work in publishing and then, you know, never going back north again. Um, and northerners sort of being left to wonder, you know, what happened to that guy that came and, you know, studied this and that and the other thing, whatever came of that work. And um, now it's much more a, a matter of course that, uh, whether it's a northern scientist or a southern scientist, that there's actual real and meaningful engagement with northern peoples. And they just don't disappear with the science and never to be seen again, but northerners actually contribute to the, the final product, which probably makes uh, the science outcome much better. Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm I'll list those as the sure two big things. Okay, fabulous. Shall we move on to the polar plug? So all this to say, um, uh, the Arctic Council is celebrating uh, 25 years this year. It's, uh, it's very much an opportunity for uh, people in, in APEX, be they physical scientists or natural scientists or social scientists, to do something really fun and innovative with their, uh, their, their scientific careers. Um, you know, don't be held back to, uh, on, on the difficulty of, of going north. There are, Many more venues than, than the Arctic Council, certainly in the Canadian context. 
things such as ArcticNet, which I think is now called Arctic Change. It's the, the largest Arctic-related scientific conference in Canada that's annual. Make the plug for the next uh, International Polar Year because that'll open up a whole uh, set of new doors. Uh, I know the last IPY wasn't really all that long ago, but uh, let's not wait 50 years to, to do another uh, IPY and engage with, uh, with communities. Uh, uh, I think uh, you'll find that there's great enthusiasm from Northerners to uh, learn about the work that uh, uh, your membership is doing in, in Arctic science and uh, include them. And, and um, I think you'll find that your science uh, at the end of the day will be much better. And everyone should go to the North. <laughs> now head North, go see the Arctic firsthand because uh, yeah. you'll be bitten and uh, you'll, you'll love it. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I would I would love to go north one day. That's one of the dreams. <laughs> okay, um, so thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Polar Times. I really hope that you have enjoyed it. If you have any questions that you would like to ask us or if you have any guest recommendations or any feedback on episodes or anything like that, you can get in contact with us via email. Our email is these are polar times at gmail.com. You could also tweet Apex uh, and at polar underscore research. Um, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Leave us a little nice five star review or if you like on your podcast shops. And all that remains is for me to thank my lovely guest for today, Robert Cadis. Thank you so much for talking to us about everything Arctic Council. My pleasure. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.